Our reading is from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him, to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who come on your name or call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes And he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It is uh, sometimes the case, isn't it, that it is a single sentence in a book we are reading, a single sentence that grabs us, uh, a single sentence that stays with us, a single sentence that transforms us. Uh, That has certainly been my experience at times. It was my experience when I read uh, a book uh, as, uh, I think it was a a late sort of teen. I wasn't a great book reader as a child, so it was a rather unusual thing for me. But I found myself reading a book that I'm sure you'll uh, know by a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I knew nothing about at the time, and the book was called The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, there was one particular sentence that just sort of grabbed me, that just engaged me. Uh, And particularly when I discovered a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this German pastor during the Second World War, 
and a little bit about his life, how he had been one of the few Christian leaders to oppose Hitler, how he'd been arrested, how he'd been imprisoned, how shortly before the end of the war he'd been executed. There was this one sentence that increasingly sort of stood out for me, very well-known sentence, you may well know it, the sentence is this, grace is free, but it is not cheap. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. By which he means that God's call to a new life in him is a, a call that is freely offered. Uh, it doesn't need to be earned, only accepted. God graciously calls us, and he graciously qualifies us for new life in him through the death of his son. It is his son who pays the price for our forgiveness, not us. Grace is free, freely offered, freely received by faith. It's grace that empowers us to live this new life in Christ, with Christ, for Christ. But it is his life we receive not our own, improved. He doesn't come in and rubber stamp our hopes and dreams and give us the power to fulfill them. No, he comes in to bring us his life. That is to say, his agenda becomes our agenda. He brings us new hopes and dreams. To take hold of this new life in Christ We need to let go of our old life. We must put our hands and our hearts into the hand of God and we go where he leads and we live like he lives. To say yes to God's new life means to say no to our old life. To pick up God's life, we must lay down our old one. It's grace because Jesus is empowers such a response, but it's costly because we must actively commit to this response of laying down the old life of self that we might lead the new life of the Spirit. Jesus puts it like this, speaking to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, again, very famous words, I'm sure you'll know them. He said this, do you remember? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, do you see? But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. To pick up God's new life that he freely offers, we must put down our old life. And that is costly. The way of Christ is the way of life, but it is not the way of the world, and therefore it is not the way of ease. It's been well said that we must, like Christ, carry a cross before we may wear a crown. Grace is free, gloriously free, but it's not cheap. And I think we see this truth vividly illustrated in the conversion of Saul and in the response of Ananias and the young Christian community to the conversion of Saul. We're back in Acts chapter 9. We're carrying on our series in Acts. And if you've closed your Bibles, it'd be a great help to me and to you if you'd have them open at Acts chapter 9, which is page 1102 if you're using the Bibles that we provide. 
And here we meet Saul again. We've met him before, if you remember, holding the coats of those who are killing uh, Stephen for being a Christian. And we meet him again here at the beginning of chapter 9 with nothing but murder on his mind. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. In other words, the persecution of the church literally was the air that Saul breathed. We see him proactively seeking permission to seek and to destroy the church, dragging Christian men and women into imprisonment. And he does it all with the zeal that flows from thinking, of course, that he is doing God's work. He is stamping out this new heresy that dares to call the man, Jesus Christ, both Lord and God. Until, on the way to Damascus to terrorize another Christian community, uh, the true God graciously makes himself known to Saul. And as with all moments of grace, it turns Saul's life upside down. Verse 3. Friends, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul meets God, and he meets him in the person of Jesus Christ. Striking, isn't it, how closely Jesus identifies with us, isn't it? How, cl- how closely he identifies with his people. Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is no small thing to strike a Christian because when you strike a Christian, you strike Christ, according to these verses. He is the head and we are the body, organically united. He identifies with his people. But notice, too, that seeing Christ for who he truly is transforms Saul. The call of Christ turns his life upside down. Go, says Jesus, and Saul goes. Do you see? Saul's agenda now is abandoned and God's agenda embraced as he begins to lay down his old life to pick up a new one. Saul's old life is finished, a new one has begun. Saul is struck blind for three days. He is cut off, as it were, from the outside world, just as Jesus was cut off in death for three days in the tomb. Here then is Saul's death in preparation to be raised to new life in Christ. Saul goes to Damascus, and now note, lovely sort of irony it seems to me, now he puts his life in the hands of Ananias and the young Christian community. The great powerful persecutor of the church is brought low. He is humbled. Now a pitiful sight, blind. And his eyes are opened. Jesus opens his eyes through Ananias. And he, Saul is baptized. He receives the spirit. A new life begins. And Saul... The persecutor is dead, and Paul, the apostle, is born. Saul is baptized into the way of Christ. He tastes the grace of sins forgiven, adoption into God's new family, and with it he receives a new agenda. He is now to be an apostle of Christ, an ambassador for Christ. He is called to speak for Christ. Jesus says to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim 
my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. What a calling. And we'll see that played out in the rest of Acts and, of course, in the rest of the New Testament as uh, Paul does that. What a calling to be a great ambassador for Christ, to take the message of Christ to Gentiles. But it'll come at a cost. Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Great grace, but not free, but not cheap. It'll come at a cost. I don't think Jesus is being vindictive here. I don't think he's saying, well, you persecuted me, Saul, so now I'm going to get my own back, and I'm going to show you just how much I'm going to make you suffer. I don't think he's saying that. I think it is more the sense of Jesus spelling out that truth that when we walk the way of Christ, we can expect to experience some of the sufferings of Christ. The truth that is spelled out many times in the New Testament, that those who speak for Christ will sometimes find themselves suffering with Christ, and that is going to be particularly true for Paul who is going to identify so closely with Christ. And this dramatic conversion leads, of course, to a dramatic transformation. Grace floods every compartment of Paul's life and brings new life and new leading. Saul, the persecutor, dies and Paul, the preacher, is born. Saul, the persecutor, dies and Paul, the persecuted, is born. Grace always turns lives upside down. God's gift of himself to us, his spirit in us, transforms all that it touches, brings life, brings the new life of God. It's gloriously good, it's gloriously free, but it is not cheap. Because to experience it, we must embrace it. And to embrace it, we must let go of the old life. Bonhoeffer went on and said this, the cross is laid on every Christian The first Christ suffering which everyone must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. It's grace because it's come and die to live. But it's costly because it's come and die. The new life God offers is freely offered for Christ paid for it, but it's costly because to live in and to live out this new life, we must let go of our old self-centered way of living. And friends, is it not the case that those old ways and those old attachments can die hard? That's the perversity of sin, of course, is that so often we cling to that which kills us. Old ways of living, old ways of thinking, old ways of speaking, they die hard oftentimes. Old agendas and old dreams that owe more to the glory of self than to the glory of God die hard. Old grudges and old bitternesses, and they die hard. To cling to Christ and to therefore let go of our old gods, our old sources of identity and satisfaction and life and security, they die hard. Materialism and careerism and other isms, they die hard. The call to follow Christ is the call to enthrone him. It's the call to let him reorder all that is good. It's not, it's not a total throwing out of everything. But it is a reordering of all that is good and a removal of all that opposes 
the life of the Spirit and that is incompatible with the Spirit. And God's grace empowers this change, but it is costly because we have to daily apply this grace to those areas of our life that die hard. Conversion turns a heart to God and it marks a definitive break with the past, new birth into God's family. But God's grace may take a little longer to transform our lives. Indeed, it takes a lifetime. For Paul, it seems dramatically quick. But for many of us, it'll be a slower process of gradual change. And God's grace, yes, sometimes slowly, but I want to say this evening, always surely brings God's life and leading to everything that it touches. And it is meant to flood every area of our lives so that it can bring God's life to every area of our lives. And so it's always a good question to ask ourselves, can I identify how God's life and God's leading is at work in this area of my life and this area of my life and this area of my life? And can I see What a difference God's grace, how the life of God plays out in this and this and this and this. It seems to me that sometimes the cost of grace, if you like, sometimes it's, it's in choosing hope over, it's choosing the hope of change over settling with the status quo. Uh, It is uh, sometimes the cost of grace is choosing as an act of will to believe that we can experience permanent change in this area of my life, an area perhaps where we have struggled for for a long time, or an area that I look at and seems so daunting, uh, that seems uh, impossible to conceive of as being different, to actually Choose to believe that God's grace can land and can transform even this can be the cost of grace. God's grace can help us to live and to think and to speak and to work and to relate in new ways, ways we couldn't have imagined before we met Christ. And he will change us if we let him. But sometimes the cost is to believe that and therefore to commit to it because you won't commit to that which you don't believe will happen to seek to apply grace to that area of our lives, to commit with Christ, to putting to death the old in order that we might experience and embrace the new. God's grace transforms. The cost is to trust that and to actively commit to it. But I want to suggest this evening as well from chapter 9, and something that struck me as I read it again uh, this week, is that God's gracious forgiveness and calling, it wasn't just wonderful but costly for Paul, It was wonderful, but costly for the Christian community, wasn't it? For Ananias. I'm always moved by those verses. The way Ananias and the Christian community respond to Paul and his conversion. Did that strike you as as Sarah was reading? Do you see how they live in and live out uh, the grace of God? It's it's a beautiful thing, the way they respond to, to Saul, but it can't have been easy. It must have been costly for them. Two of the most moving words, I think, for me as I read this again, were there in verse 17. Two of the most moving words, I think. Brother Saul. Isn't that an extraordinary thing for Ananias to say as his first words? 
brother Saul. I mean, he receives him and he embraces him as a brother. I mean, do you not think the temptation would have at least been to have been a little bit cool towards this man who has been dragging your brothers and sisters, terrorizing them, standing there holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death? A little bit cool, a little bit standoffish. Do you not think the temptation would have been, what were you thinking? How could you have done X? First two words when he lays eyes on him, brother Saul. doesn't bear a grudge. Grace works powerfully and Ananias is hard and he responds graciously towards him. Gripped by grace, Ananias is able to put to death the natural responses you might expect to come to mind. Put them to death and embrace Saul as a brother. To see him as God sees him, as a forgiven sinner, a member of the family. Brother Saul. And the Christian community does the same as you read on. In fact, they go so far as to start putting their lives on the line for Saul to rescue him when his life is threatened for preaching Christ. That is the grace of God at work, isn't it? It's beautiful. Bringing new life, new responses they wouldn't have dreamed of, living the life of forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing. But I don't think it was an easy thing. I think they had to commit to it. I think they had to choose to do it. You'll know, I'm sure, uh, that great book, uh, The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom, uh, written about her experiences of being in a, a concentration, hide, hiding Jews during the Second World War, being in a concentration camp. There is that very moving passage, and I'm going to read it because it fits so well with this passage, and I'm sure uh, many of you will know it, but I make no apology for reading it because I think it fits so well of her similar experience of the wonder of grace, the power of grace, but also the costliness of grace grace. Here it is. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, the blue uniform and the visored cap with its skull and crossbones. And it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we had been sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. 
You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. That is new life in action. That is grace in action. That is the power of God to liberate a heart and to reconcile people at work. God has forgiven you, she says, so can I. God has forgiven you, so must I. God has forgiven you, so will I. But it was costly. It was costly. Receiving God's new life in that moment, letting God's new life flow in and through her, it is a wonderful thing, but it was costly to know the freedom of forgiveness. It was a wonderful thing, but it was a costly thing. What enables her to do it? Grace from start to finish. She prays to the Lord Jesus for his power, and Christ always empowers us for that which he calls us to do. She meditates on the knowledge of her own need of forgiveness. And then she chooses to put to death her old natural instincts and to embrace the way of grace. As a community of grace, will we respond graciously to those who wrong us? Will we live God's life of forgiveness? It is the way of Christ, and therefore it is the way of life. But it won't necessarily be easy. Forgiveness is a costly commitment. It's been well said that when we forgive, we commit ourselves to at least three things. We commit ourselves to this, I will not bring up this offense again or use it against you. We commit ourselves to that. That's what forgiveness means. I choose not to bring it up, use it against you. I will not gossip or malign you because of this offense. I will choose not to use it against you if I forgive you. I will not dwell on it. I will not replay the videotape of your sin so that I can savor every excruciating detail. That's what forgiveness looks like. It's costly. It's a commitment. Will we be those people who experience the life of grace, the way of Christ, the wonder of reconciling forgiveness amongst one another when we are wronged and when we wrong 
It's a wonderful thing, but it is a costly thing. Will we apply that grace to the way we relate to each other, to our spouses, to our friends, to our bosses, whoever it might be? Grace is free, gloriously free, wonderfully free. But it is not cheap. Christ's forgiveness, his life-giving presence, his power to transform is freely offered because he has borne the cost. But it is costly because to embrace his new life involves a commitment to walk in step with his spirit against the tide of our world and against the tide of our old self-centered life. But it is always worth the cost because it is the way of life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. God give us the grace so to do. Amen.